America, and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on Russia and Ukraine. Our guest is Ambassador John Sullivan, U.S. Ambassador to Russia from December 2019 to October 2022. Sullivan completed his law degree at Columbia University and has held senior positions in the Departments of Justice, Defense, and Commerce in the George W. Bush and Obama administrations. He served as Deputy Secretary of Commerce from 2008 to 2009 and chaired the U.S.-Iraq Business Dialogue from 2010 to 2016. Sullivan served as Deputy Secretary of State from 2017 to 2019. As ambassador to Russia, Sullivan led the U.S. diplomatic operations in Moscow through Russia's 2022 reinvasion of Ukraine. He is currently a partner in Mayor Brown's Washington, D.C. and New York offices. Russia's reinvasion of Ukraine fits a pattern of aggression visible from the early 2000s. In 2004, the Kremlin attempted to assassinate Ukrainian presidential candidate Viktor Yushchenko. In 2007, after Estonia removed a statue of a Red Army soldier in Tallinn, Russia incited riots and initiated a major denial-of-service attack against Estonian banks, government bodies, and media outlets. In 2008, Russia invaded Georgia and, changed European borders by force for the first time since World War II. In 2014, Russian troops invaded Ukraine and forced an illegal annexation of Crimea. Prior to the invasion, Russia backed pro-Kremlin separatist movements in eastern Ukraine and used disinformation to cloak its brazen aggression. The Ukrainian people have courageously resisted Russia's invasion under the leadership of President Volodymyr Zelensky, as of June 2023, Russia controls nearly 15% of Ukraine, but Ukraine's heroic defense and counteroffensive have inflicted massive losses on Russian forces, as Putin succeeded mainly in isolating Russia economically and diplomatically from the free world. We welcome Ambassador Sullivan on the eve of a Ukrainian counteroffensive to discuss Russia's aggression, its impact on the US and NATO, and the future of Ukraine. Ambassador John Sullivan, welcome to Battlegrounds. It is great to see you. And I've just got to tell you, of all the people I've worked with in Washington, I think I, I enjoy working with you the most of just about anybody. So great to see you again. You're too kind. It's great to great to be with you again, talking about uh, the issues we're going to talk about. I miss our days together back, uh, back here in D.C., where I'm located right now. Well, you know, John, when we work together, you had a pretty broad portfolio, you know, Deputy Secretary of State, you've got the whole world to think about. But but even in that period of time between 2017 and 2018, we focused you know, quite a bit on Russia and, and Vladimir Putin. And I think we we shared the assessment. I know we did at the time that 
that we really we had to work hard to restore deterrence with Putin. Putin had been aggressive, you know, since he took over in 2000. You could argue certainly after 2003 when he poisoned a presidential candidate in, in Ukraine. Uh, and some of the what some of the things that we did in that in that first year was we imposed more sanctions on Russian individuals and entities uh, in that one year than the previous eight years of the previous administration. And uh, we bolstered Ukraine's defenses with uh, with defensive capabilities, real lethal capabilities, the javelin missile in, in particular, we contested Russia and Syria uh, and other places. And and so I, I just want to, I would love to hear your perspective because you've been coping with this, dealing with this problem quite directly across multiple administrations. And and uh, how do you think it evolved? How do we get to where we are today uh, with you know the reinvasion of Ukraine uh, last year in February of, uh, of 2022? Uh, um, what is your assessment of how this threat from this revanchist, you know, hyper-nationalist uh, regime in, in Russia developed? Well, you, you hit the nail on the head right there at the, the, the end, HR, where you described it as a hyper-nationalist, revanchist regime. We were approaching Russia as a country that we thought we could do, still do some business with, uh, both as deputy secretary and even when I arrived as ambassador, uh, I got confirmed as ambassador in December 2019. We were still looking for areas in which we could work with, with the Russians, whether it was strategic security talks, arms control, cyber issues, wrongfully detained Americans. Uh, but the areas in which we could work with the Russians, or at least talk with them, they were shrinking over time. And Putin just, the, the Russian government was not dealing with us in good faith, uh, we we sort of knew it at the time, and we're saying, you know, I remember talking to my colleagues at the State Department with you and your colleagues at the NSC. We had a sense of the adversary we were dealing with, but we still approached it as Americans who didn't really have the proper assessment of the adversary slash enemy that we were dealing with. He had started a conflict with us a long time ago. He now says he's at war with us. Uh, we don't use that language and distill in describing uh, our relationship with Russia. But that's the way the Russians approached us, the Russian government under Putin. Uh, I'm not sure that there was anything we could have done, whether it was in the Trump administration or the Biden administration, uh, that would have deterred uh, Putin from the imperial project on which he launched the Russian Federation on February 24th, 2022. He's been, he's been working toward this for decades, in my opinion. Uh, and uh, he, is, he was not to be deterred then, and he's not going to stop. There's no off-ramp for, uh, for Putin in, in this war. So you're right. We were tough on Russia, but we were tough on Russia the way uh, the Germans and, uh, excuse me, the, uh, the, the British uh, and the French were with, uh, with the Germans before the Second World War. We thought we could do business. Chamberlain thought he could do business with the Chancellor uh, before the Second World War started, and he couldn't. Uh, we couldn't do business with Putin. We thought we could, and we weren't the only ones, by the way. Chancellor Merkel, the German government as well. A lot of us thought we could do business and, and keep, keep the Russian problem cabin, uh, and that just wasn't possible.
John, it won't surprise you. I, I agree with your assessment. But, you know, there are people who say, hey, the reason why Putin you know, invaded Ukraine and maybe even in 2014 or the reinvasion of, of 2022 is because he was provoked. You know, he was provoked by the expansion of NATO, you know, what he viewed as, as NATO aggression against Putin. And, of course, you know, he has these crazy narratives of, uh, of you know, denazifying Ukraine and so forth. But there are many people, even in the United States and in Europe, who say, hey, this is our fault. You know, what, what do you say? What do you say to those people and, and to those who, who make that argument? Wow. Yeah, I hear it all the time, HR. You're, you're absolutely right. And it's so wrong. Among other things, it doesn't account for uh, the agency and the interests of Eastern Europeans. It's always phrased as NATO is marching east. We're looking to acquire uh, the, the Baltics, Poland, Czech Republic, Slovakia, etc., it doesn't account for the fact that the millions of people who live in those countries who suffered for decades under Soviet rule and fear the intention and motivations of the leadership in the Kremlin, that they're the ones for their own protection, their own self-interest, their own security, sought refuge in the defensive alliance, which is NATO. NATO was not an offensive alliance, as you know, as well as anyone. Uh, so I say it doesn't account for it. It's a typical Russian propaganda trope that uh, they talk about indivisible security in Europe, which uh, nominally means if one country is insecure, then the whole country is insecure. But from the Russian perspective, that means if Russia is insecure, then the continent is insecure. But if we make the Ukrainians, the Poles, the Czechs insecure, that doesn't matter. And they can't do anything about it, like seek to join NATO, seek to defend themselves against the aggression that clearly Putin's been planning for years, his aggression against, uh, against Ukraine. And one final point, and again, there's an echo of the Second World War here. Putin always loves to make references to what the Russians call the Great Patriotic War. And as ambassador, I was always careful to credit the Red Army, the Soviet peoples, for the victory over Nazi Germany, to which in, in you know the Second World War, in which the Soviet people suffered greatly, millions and millions of innocent uh, civilians killed, huge slaughter on the Eastern Front, great sacrifice uh, by the Red Army, by the citizens of of the Soviet Union, but Putin turns that victory to to bolster his imperialist aggression. Uh, and he twists the Second World War. By the way, he doesn't refer to it as the Second World War. That World War, the part of the World War in the Pacific, that you know, minor skirmish with the Japanese that uh, the US and other allies uh, fought, that really doesn't count in, in his estimation of uh, uh, his accounting of, of the Second World War. But think about this. Putin's imperial, imperialist ambition and how he's justified this special military operation. It, there are echoes of the German, the Nazi justification, Hitler's justification for invading Poland on September 1st, 1939. The Germans uh, coming out of the First World War uh, from, from the Nazi perspective and, and, and more mainstream German perspective, the German people, the German Volk, the German state 
was really railroaded by the Allies, shackled with enormous uh, war reparations, having to confess to war guilt, uh, losing portions of what was traditionally uh, German, uh, Prussian, German territory. The Germans had grievances coming out of the First World War into the 1930s. Hitler seized on those and used them as a justification for what became his own imperialist war. It started before September 1st, 1939, with uh, you know, with with a whole series, whether it was the Anschluss with uh, with Austria, remilitarizing the Rhineland, the Sudeten crisis, etc. But the war starts on September 1st, 1939, and here's here is Hitler's justification, which is the exact same justification Putin uses: We were screwed in a war we didn't lose 20 years ago. We lost territory in our east, prime Prussian homeland, where our Germans, our people, our Volk, are now separated from us by a phony border created by others, not by us, that separates our people. And now our people, our German Volk, are being abused by Polish barbarism, Polish barbarians are abusing Germans in what is our German homeland. And by God, channeling Frederick the Great, I'm going to solve that problem. And that's the same thing Putin's doing. His rationale at the start was the great tragedy of the demise of the Soviet Union. It wasn't the demise of communism. It was that Soviet state, when, that, when the Soviet state collapsed, the internal borders that separated the various republics of the Soviet Union that were governed by the center in Moscow, those internal boundaries became international borders, which separated his, it, just as Hitler used the possessive, his, his Germans, Putin does the same, his, our Russians, are now on the wrong side of a phony border in our West, in, in the Russian case, as opposed to with, with the Germans in the East, in our West, our Southwest, there's a phony border that separates our Russians who are now being abused by Ukrainian barbarism. Putin goes so far as to say a Ukrainian genocide. And what's one lesson, if there's one lesson we can take, and there are many from the Second World War, if you've got grievances, the way to solve grievances is not by starting an international armed conflict on the continent of Europe, which is exactly what Vladimir Putin did. The United States, the West, the collective West, the Anglo-Saxons and our vassals, all of the different names that Putin calls us, we didn't start this war. We didn't provoke this war. We're not perfect. No country, no government, no alliances. But we didn't provoke this war. Putin calculatingly started this war to uh, to accomplish his imperial ambitions. Yeah, John. I mean, I, I think that you remind me of this Orwell quotation of he who controls the present controls the past and he who controls the past controls the future. And and uh, and I'm struck by the parallels of 1939 as well. I'm thinking of Roger Morehouse's book. Poland 1939, the first few chapters of that, it's exactly what Putin was doing, except maybe with, with modern communications. And, you know, some things, John, in life are, are you know, are, are black swans. Other things are like pink flamingos, right? Like you, they're right there in front of you. I mean, you know that's going to happen. This yep. is my friend Frank Hoffman makes this point oftentimes. But, you know, I, I think it was pretty clear he was going to do it, right? I mean, Putin, 
you know, of course, invaded Ukraine in 2014, uh, had, had, you know, and, and then conducted, you know, a form of ethnic cleansing and consolidation uh, of control over the territories in Donetsk, Luhansk, and in Crimea. And, but then, you know, he telegraphed it, didn't he, John? Like in, in August of, of 20, of, uh, you know, 2021, uh, when he wrote that long essay, essentially giving his version of, of history and, and claiming that, you know, that Ukraine had always been part of the, the Russian empire. So, you were there. Could you maybe yeah. talk about the run-up to the war? Sure. You read the situation, uh, the decisions maybe of the Biden administration in that run-up to, to the war, and then and how you would assess that period, you know, the period of of escalating tensions and 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 mobilization of troops and what seemed you know from you know for over almost for almost a year, preparations for a reinvasion. So, so you're you're absolutely right, HR. It starts uh, well. I think you can actually trace it back, and you said I think earlier back to 2003. You go through his Munich Security Conference speech. You know, we can we can trace yeah, it back that speech a right, long man. time to invasion of Georgia, 2008. Right. I mean, you know, back to when he's Lieutenant Colonel Putin in Dresden in the KGB, and. He's calling back to the center to the Lubyanka for for instructions and no one's answering the phone. I mean, we can we there's a lot to unpack there. But if we fast forward to the spring of 2021, uh, where there's a buildup uh, in southwestern Russia that was very concerning, uh, there was a split within between the, the UK and the United States, the United States government's assessment or intelligence community thought that this was this was a feint. Putin was turning up the heat on this conflict, but wasn't going to cross the border. I think uh, intelligence professionals and some other capitals thought that there was a greater chance that Putin would cross the border. There were various scenarios that were being sketched out about a smaller scale incursion, whether it was south across uh, across Ukraine to seize the territory, which, which they actually wound up doing successfully in the special military operation to Kherson, uh, seizing all of that, uh, that shoreline along the Sea of Azov, uh, securing the, the, uh, the canal that provides aqueduct that provides water to Crimea. There were various scenarios for uh, what would have been an invasion of Ukraine, but on a much smaller scale. Uh, it turns out that uh, he wasn't ready to do anything then to cross an international border, but he left in place, and this is what people paid attention to, he left in place infrastructure, particularly in Crimea, that could be used for a subsequent uh, invasion. And, and that's what he was doing. It was, it was a feint, it was a combination feint, exercise, partial buildup to have the infrastructure ready, whether it was depots, field hospitals, you name it. Uh, the, the intelligence community was keeping very careful track of that. And then by the fall, early fall, late September, early October, it became clear for a variety of reasons, and including the buildup, continuing buildup in, in uh, southwestern Russia and in Crimea, that he was going to launch an invasion. But here's, here's the important point, though, uh, I think. We knew he was going to do it. We didn't know the scale. And you'll recall that President Biden said at one point 
in, in a press conference that eh, if it's a limited, I think he was asked something about, uh, you know, are you going to be able to keep the Europeans together if and when Putin invades Ukraine? And it was his answer was something like, well, you know, we'll have to see if it's a limited incursion. Uh, maybe it would be more difficult and that generated it was unscripted. Uh, you and I both have experience with presidents who have unscripted moments uh, in front of uh, in front of a camera. Uh, it gave people some pause when when he said that. Uh, but I was convinced at that point that he wasn't settling for uh, a limited incursion into Ukraine. Uh, you pointed to the article he wrote, the, histor the, the, the historical article he wrote that tried to justify the case that Ukraine isn't an independent sovereign nation. It's always been part of the Russian empire. It's Russian, it's ours, it's part of our Ruski Mir, debunked by historians across the political spectrum, uh, phony history. Uh, but I was telling people uh, and particularly as the calendar turned from 2021 to 2022, that this was going to be an invasion of Ukraine. This wasn't going to be a limited incursion. And uh, I said as much, Secretary Blinken called me, it was, uh, so the invasion started on Thursday, February 24th. The secretary called, he was at the Munich Security Conference the prior week, and he called me on Saturday, February 19th. And this is when I first started talking about uh, September 1st, 1939. He wanted to know, you know, what my impressions were, how things were at the embassy, what we were hearing in, in Moscow, et cetera. And I said to him, I said, it feels like September 1st, it's August 31st, 1939. He's going to do it and he's going in big and he's not going to settle for a limited incursion. He's going to want to bring uh, bring the government down. He's going to want to take all of what he wants from Ukraine and leave the rest, the scraps in the West to the West. So that was my sense. But I had trouble convincing people, not Secretary Blinken, he and I were aligned on this, but there were a number of people, and I'd cite in particular uh, U.S. citizens, U.S. business leaders in Russia who had vested interests, had done been doing business there for years, and they just weren't willing to believe that he was really going to do it. It was irrational, they said. The consequences will be cataclysmic for him. It will be, it would be terrible. He's not irrational. He won't do it. And I said, he is rational. It's just his definition of what's rational and what he wants is different from ours. He doesn't care if you continue to do business here. What he cares about is, is rebuilding, being Vladimir the Great, who rebuilds the Russian empire, rejoins those parts of Ukraine that he thinks are traditionally Russian, including Kyiv, to the Ruski Mir, to, uh, to Russia and Belarus, which they already have a union state uh, arrangement with and is basically uh, an adjunct to, uh, to the government in the Kremlin. So people didn't want to hear that message. They didn't believe he would do it. They didn't believe that he would actually engage in a large scale World War II style bombs, missiles, tanks, uh, you know, large envelopment movements, uh, they didn't believe it. The most they would 
the most they would credit uh, the argument that I was making was, well, maybe there'll be a small scale excursion or more to the point they'd say, he's just, he's bluffing. And he's just, he's come in, he's come into, he wants to negotiate and he's putting a gun on the table here. And that's what he's doing, but he won't pull the trigger. And my response was, he's put a Kalashnikov on the table and he's going to pick it up and he's going to spray the room and he doesn't care who gets killed so long as he gets what he wants. And they'd say, you're full of it, forget about it. And those same people on February 25th were sending me text messages asking for help, the help of the U.S. Embassy to get out of Russia. So people just didn't want to hear it. John, what you're, what you're laying out, I think, is just a classic case of you have multiple cognitive traps that people fall into based on what we might call strategic narcissism, right? The viewing the world only in relation to us and assuming that what we do or decide not to do is decisive toward achieving a favorable outcome or mirror imaging the other, right? Thinking that 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 Putin's calculation of interest must be just like ours, you know, and neglecting the degree to which emotion, which you've talked about, his obsession with restoring Russia to national greatness to, and to avenge his sense of honor lost associated with the breakup of the uh, of the Soviet Union, and also the ideology that drives and constrains the other. And I think his belief that that his authoritarian system is superior to the decadent, you know, weak uh, West. And and so I'd like to ask you about that. Why did he think he could get away with it, John? I'll tell you. As soon as the invasion started, I said, "Okay, he's failed already. There's no way in hell this can work." I mean, just look at the scale on the map, you know. Look, look at look at the improvements in the Ukrainian forces that have been made, uh, especially since 2014, and then and then also you know just the the you know the you know, the the, the uh, qualitative problems in in the in the Russian army, but you know I think John we could say that what provokes Putin is the perception of weakness. Yeah, of course. You know, 2008 uh, when we were preoccupied with Iraq and, and Afghanistan, and 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 the opposition to the Iraq war was was growing, and we had the financial crisis. Uh, whether it's 2014 with the unenforced red line in Syria, you know, and, and I think I can't help but draw a line, John, between the re, between the, the the humiliating surrender to the Taliban and with and, and withdrawal from Afghanistan and this reinvasion. But what what do you think, you know, led to to the you know, to the decision? But also, why the hell did he think he could get it done? He could get away with it. So a couple of things, HR, you're you're absolutely right about their attitude. And I I say that with some confidence because I, I was privileged to accompany uh, then the CIA director, Bill Burns, who was sent by the president in early November of 21, as we were, as it was becoming clear to the United States government that Putin was going to take military action in Ukraine to warn them that we saw what they were planning to do and that the consequences sanctions, export controls, you know, the economic costs alone would be substantial. There wasn't a message that you will be uh, opposed militarily on the battlefield in Ukraine. And as much as I, I like to talk about how uh, I was able to tell people what was going to happen uh, on February 24th, up to February 24th, and the, la the launching of the invasion, I fail completely, uh, and uh, I, I would include my, my colleagues in the U.S. government, in the intelligence community, about our assessment of how 
how the special, what turned out to be the special military operation would go. I thought that, uh, that Putin would, maybe not on the time frame that they had planned, which was weeks, uh, but that they would capture Kyiv. They would, they would do to the Ukrainians what Brezhnev and the Warsaw Pact did to the Czechs in, in 1968. And it was roughly- Or the Hungarians in 56. Right? Or the Hungarians in 56. I focused on 68 because it was roughly the same. It was Warsaw Pact, not, mostly not Red Army, two, roughly 200,000 uh, troops uh, that take Prague, put Dubček on a plane, send him to Moscow. Uh, he gets re-educated and sent back. My recollection is he was he's sent back and he becomes a, a forest ranger in uh, eastern Slovakia. They didn't kill him, uh, but I thought that uh, that he was going to be able to do to Ukraine what Brezhnev did to Czechoslovakia. Uh, and uh, boy, were uh, was I and were were we wrong? And you know, tremendous credit to President Zelensky at a time when everyone thought he was a dead man. There was a wanted posted uh, uh, you know, uh, in the Kremlin for him and his, his time on this earth, his days were, were numbered and he had the courage to say, I'm not leaving, I'm staying, we're gonna resist and we can resist and they did. So to your question, HR, uh, first, we, the United States failed to anticipate, failed to account for two things how incompetent and corrupt and ill-planned the special military operation was. We talk about their, their uh, BTGs, battalion tactical groups, and the number of troops involved, but it was much smaller than, you, you, you recognize this immediately, compare the size of the military that Putin used to try to conquer Ukraine with the 1.4 million uh, Germans that Hitler mobilized to attack the Low Countries in France. France, roughly a country, you know, similar similar size. He thought he could do it on the cheap. He thought that uh, it, it's it's a it, they engage in a hybrid warfare. It wasn't just a military operation. Uh, it involved the security services, principally the FSB, the, which includes the border guards. Their National Guard, uh, their, the Rosgardia, which he's formed uh, recently as sort of a palace guard, uh, and the regular military, uh, and the level of corruption, uh, the lack of training, uh, the the poor quality of the equipment, and so forth. It was all revealed to you know the 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 military itself was real to be revealed to be shockingly ill prepared. But the bigger failure, I think, was actually by the FSB. The FSB was supposed to prepare the battlefield. The FSB was supposed to have rendered Ukraine a rickety shack. Hitler described the Soviet Union before Barbarossa as a, a rickety shack, and all we have to do is kick the door in and it will collapse. They're rotten, rotting from within. The FSB was supposed to have rendered Ukraine that rickety shack that um, the military thrusts south from, from Belarus, from the east uh, in Russia and up from Crimea, uh, they were gonna slice through 
uh, what little resistance the Ukrainians could muster. They would turn Ukrainians against their own government, capture Zelensky, uh, you know, either he's killed or he's put on a plane and brought to, uh, brought to Moscow like Dubček. But it was the FSB, and it's a double failure, right? Because they're charged with preparing the battle space so that you know they have their people in place to uh, make sure that bridges aren't blown up uh, when armed columns have to uh, make certain movements, you know, so that they're prepared and they're prepared with an administration to go in and take over and govern the portions of, of Ukraine that they captured. They weren't ready. And then the, the, that's one failure. The second failure was they, they couldn't tell Putin that, that Ukraine wasn't ready to be sacked the way Putin thought it was and the way they had told him it would be. So he himself, Putin thinks from his, and these are his, this is his milieu. These are his people. He is of the FSB, right? Former director, his security, uh, the, the secretary of his security council, Nikolai Patrushev, former director of the FSB. I think as, the, as big a failure as the Russian military has been, I think the, FS, the FSB is equally uh, responsible for, uh, for the failure here. So Russians not prepared or capable to do what they were supremely confident they could do in underestimating the courage and the resilience of the Ukrainians. And not just Zelensky, but the Ukrainian people, including people who had, and this is Secretary Blinken a couple of weeks ago gave a speech in Helsinki about you know, the strategic catastrophes that have resulted from the Russian perspective of, of the special military operation. Even those, even those Ukrainians uh, who were native Russian speakers in Eastern Ukraine, who had attachment to Russia and the Russian homeland, turned against many of them, Russia and Putin and the Russian military uh, for what they've done, the invasion of their country. There's a famous image, HR. I remember sitting in my office in Moscow and seeing this image and news coverage of this elderly woman in, in Eastern, Eastern Ukraine, a babushka in Eastern Ukraine who is, who is walking up to a fully kitted Russian soldier, I believe paratrooper with, you know, with an assault weapon, fully kitted out. And she hands him a fistful of sunflower seeds and says, put these in your pockets. So when you're dead and buried here, something good will come from your presence and we'll have sunflower seeds that will bloom from your corpse when you're dead and buried here. And I remember thinking, wow, when you have elderly Ukrainians who were probably, you know, uh, you know, Russian leaning uh, in their outlook and in their language, who are saying that to Russian soldiers, boy, that's a, that's to quote George, President George W. Bush, that's a misunderestimation <laughs> of, uh, of the Ukrainians in the Ukrainian battle space. Well, John, as, as you know, there's been a tremendous suffering in, in Ukraine because of this onslaught. The war's gone through multiple phases. You know, the defeat of this uh, this uh, Russian onslaught uh, in in the spring, uh, and, uh, and and into the into the summer of 2022. Then you had some extremely successful Ukrainian counteroffensives, which took back 
you know, vast swaths of territory in Donetsk and, 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 and Luhansk. And, and then we had almost like the Western Front of World War One, you know, phase of, of the war, where it was just a grinding war of attrition. And of course, the Ukrainian people were subjected to massive bombardment of, of their homes and their schools and their hospitals and, and, and their critical infrastructure. Uh, and now we are on, on, the, on the cusp of, of, of uh, the Ukrainian counteroffensive as Ukraine is, has endeavored to generate combat power. And, but I think, John, we, we have been in a war of attrition up to this point, right? Wars of attrition are decided by some sort of a combination of, of will, which you've described, uh, through the you know the persona of this of this uh, Ukrainian elderly woman, but I think it's representative of of the Ukrainian population uh, broadly, uh, and and uh, and also capacity, right? The ability to fight, the ability to uh, to, to to win on the battleground, to regain control of territory and population. And so, what is your assessment now, like on both sides, right? Uh, on on the Ukrainian side and on the Russian side, uh, not to not to say to predict the the future, but how do you think? About about the prospects for Ukrainian success or failure in this counteroffensive, uh, and then and then maybe we can talk a little bit about what you see as as a way to the end of this thing. Well, I I have uh, the mistakes, and I've made many in my uh, in my work uh, as 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 ambassador in in Moscow was underestimating the Ukrainians, uh, and uh, but and overestimating the Russians. But one area where I'd say I think we in the West, and particularly we in the United States, we don't understand, a lot of people don't understand, particularly those who are uh, saying that things like we provoke the Russians, uh, Putin, you know, ultimately wars are settled uh, at the negotiating table. Uh, I think that would have been news to General MacArthur on the, on the deck of the battleship Missouri. Uh, well, now, John, if I could just interject here, right? What did we hear for years about Afghanistan? Right. No military solution. Right. Afghanistan. Well, the Taliban came up with one, didn't they? Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, Putin, he's not quitting. No. He's, and I say this to, to Americans, I say, for those who are old enough to remember Vietnam, he, he can't be like LBJ. He can't send hundreds of thousands of troops into, uh, into South Vietnam and then have the Tet Offensive happen, decide, oh, geez, we're, we're really, we're on the wrong side here. Uh, I'm not gonna run for reelection. I'm gonna retire to the LBJ ranch and grow a beard. Uh, Putin can't do that. Uh, he's all in. This is, I, I've said this and others, some of, some of our former colleagues, uh, Fiona Hill and I have, we we're uh, we are we're often we appear on panels and we're often in stereo saying the same thing uh, that he's messianic he's got a vision and he is not going to be deterred by large scale casualties in the Russian military these are the way he spins it these are the sons of uh, of Russia the grandsons of the here of the great heroes of of the Red Army from the Great Patriotic War who uh, sacrificed themselves for the, the greater good of what Putin says Russia, but it's in fact the Soviet Union. Uh, he's, he's not given up and he's gonna do everything he can to wait us out and more. And he's gonna depend on uh, relationships that he's built with his dear friend in Beijing, with the Indians, with the new government in, in Brazil, 
with the so-called global south. All those countries, the, Iran, the Iranians, and there were thousands of drones. The North Koreans selling them, uh, selling them artillery shells. Um, what he's counting on is not just the. So in the in the United Nations, in the General Assembly, there have been uh, several resolutions that have condemned and deplored the special military operation, and over 140 countries voted for them. 35, 37 countries abstained. Uh, what he's counting on is not just those countries that abstained, like uh, like China, but among the 141 that voted for the resolution that condemns and deplores the special military operation, uh, they're still doing business with the Russians. They don't care about, they don't want to get caught violating U.S. sanctions, but they're not uh, not going to uh, curtail in any way their relationship with Russia. Putin thinks he has enough support around the world that he can continue his special military operation, even if it takes years and years, even if it takes the rest of his tenure as president, however long he's got on, uh, on, God's, on God's green earth, however long it takes, that is going to be his accomplishment for uh, for Russia, for the Russian Federation, for the Russian Empire, and what sets him apart, the way he cites Peter the Gate, Catherine the Great, and so forth, uh, he's he's going to he's going to keep going, and even if there's a negotiation and a ceasefire, and here I agree with Secretary Blinken says this all the time when he's criticized for not trying to promote negotiations. Now, Putin doesn't want to negotiate. And even when he says he will negotiate, he won't. He is biding his time. He, you know, I get asked all the time, what's the off-ramp? And I say, he doesn't want an off-ramp. In a Sherman-esque way, he would say, if, you know, if offered one, I, you know, I don't want it. And, and if, if you direct me to it, I won't take it. What I will take, though, is the Vladimir Vladimirovich, if we're going to use a highway or a turnpike analogy, I'll take the Vladimir Vladimirovich rest area. Yeah. I'll rest and regroup. We'll lick our wounds. We'll get, you know, get our, you know, get our military uh, in, in better shape. And we'll continue to pursue this, uh, this goal, which he thinks is noble and worth the sacrifice of a lot more Russians than have already been killed in Ukraine to date. That's the adversary we face. And that's why it's important for the United States, for any country that believes in the UN Charter uh, to, to oppose uh, Russia in, in Ukraine. And why I'm disappointed by many people in my own party, the Republican Party, who seem to think that uh, a negotiated settlement is not only possible, but in the interests of the United States. And that is so profoundly wrong, it's hard for me to to, to think that that anybody who says it has really studied the matter carefully. Yeah, John, I think you're so right. Putin will only stop until he's convinced he's been defeated. And as long right. as he can hold on to territory, I would say, including Crimea, he's in a position to continue to try to choke Ukraine out. This is why I think it is immensely important for the counteroffensive to succeed, but then also for, for the Ukrainians to place at risk those military facilities in Crimea uh, and to fundamentally achieve security for Ukraine that allows it to reconstruct itself and become a viable state, maybe along the lines of like South Korea, right, where there's just a ceasefire, 
uh, or Israel, who, who's lived for, you know, and, and survived and defended itself in, for a long time in a very hostile neighborhood. So, John, how, how do you see the, the course of the war going, right? What, is, what does Putin have left? As you mentioned, he's hoping we'll lose our will, right? That the West will, the West broadly, you know, the free world, however you want to characterize it, but the United States, our European allies and others, Japan and others who have, who have supported uh, Ukraine, uh, but he's, he also could escalate either vertically or horizontally. Some people have talked about, you know, maybe his use of a tactical nuclear weapon. I don't buy it, but that's, you know, that's a discussion that we have to have. But then also to escalate horizontally, right? He's not playing, he's still playing a role of creating problems throughout Europe and Moldova, for example, in the Transnistria region or uh, meddling in, in the forthcoming Bulgarian election next year or stoking Serbian nationalism uh, in, in the Balkan states uh, and, and uh, maybe trying to destabilize Kosovo, you know, um, continuing to, I think, destabilize Syria, West Africa. Okay, so what does Putin do? What does he have left? And then what do you see the course of the, of the war? How do you see the course of the war uh, changing? Well, he's, he's not in a comfortable position because he's become dependent on countries that he can't bully and control. Uh, and so we saw, I, I just saw a news report the other day with uh, some of the Iranian drones that have been, uh, have been taken and broken down and finding uh, relatively recently manufactured Chinese components in those drones. Uh, so despite the Chinese government, the PRC, saying that they are, they are not providing weapons to either side, in fact, they are. In fact, they're helping the Ukrainians create uh, drones for Russia to launch against Ukraine and kill innocent people. By the way, a footnote, what you talk about putting at risk uh, strategic areas for the Russians. Uh, it just amazes me how, how the Russians can, their, uh, you know, their uh, propaganda, where they talk about and complain about terrorist strikes by the U by the Ukrainians imagine terrorist strikes in Belgorod my god they even launched some drones against Moscow all of this from a government that on a daily basis is launching cruise missiles hypersonic missiles which maybe aren't quite as capable as as President Putin thought, artillery and so forth, killing Ukrainians on innocent people on a daily basis. So yeah, we've got to put at risk, I think we, the Ukrainians, those who want Ukraine to succeed, have to want Ukraine to put at, to put at risk that which Putin values. Only then will he stop. But the problem we confront, though, at the end, HR, is that once he stops, it's going to be difficult for him to sell this as a victory such that he and his, his family, extended families, uh, are secure. So it's not just, I come back to my LBJ analogy, it's not just the judgment of history, his political future, it's his life. Uh, just as, as Hitler was stuck in, in the bunker and knew that uh, there wasn't going to be a negotiated settlement with, with the allies. Putin has got to fear if there is a negotiated settlement with the Ukrainians that is unfavorable to the Russians, Putin's got to worry about not only his own people, but his own government. 
and his life expectancy at that point, you know, I, I, you know, he may have a lesser chance than I thought Zelensky had on February 24th in Kiev. Well, and, and John, it is that whole sort of hyper-nationalist class of people with him, right? The people we know, Patrashev and right. uh, Shoigu, who's not the most impressive person, you know, but, but Patrashev is even more, I think, you know, hyper-nationalist than Putin potentially, you know? So right. I'd like to ask, ask you, you know, Stephen Kotkin, who's our, our colleague here at Hoover, a brilliant scholar uh, of Stalin and of the Soviet Union and of Russia, he, he points out that, hey, these authoritarian regimes, they don't have to be that strong, actually. They have to just be stronger than any organized opposition. Yes. John, you've spent a lot of time in Moscow. What do you think the alternative futures are for Russia? I mean, if, if the Ukrainians can succeed, for example, in this offensive, they take back maybe all the territory that had been seized since 2014, it, it becomes kind of inescapable, right, for the Russian people to recognize that they've suffered tremendous losses, you know, for nothing. Um, and, and they've inflicted tremendous and horrible damage uh, on their on their neighbor. Um, you know what 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 are the potential alternatives uh, for you know for the future of Russia? So I you know what I'll cite uh, uh, Vladimir Karamurza, a person I know you you know, uh, whom I got to know pretty well when I was ambassador in uh, in Moscow, uh, and this is a man who whom the Russian government, the security services, twice tried to kill to poison and is now in a, in a labor camp uh, in a sentence that will last the rest of his life. This is a man who to this day still believes that Russia and the Russians are capable of governing themselves in such a way as to become uh, a member of the, the community of nations in a way that the Russian Federation, since Putin became uh, president uh, over 20 years ago, hasn't been. I, I must say, he, he has that optimistic outlook. He was will, he's been willing to put his life on the line. I met with him just days at the US Embassy, days before he was arrested. This was after the special military operation began. Um, and uh, he was back in Russia. Um, he, had the, he had the audacity to come to the US embassy. I tried to meet with him somewhere else. He said, no, he wanted to come to, uh, to the embassy to meet with me. And he still, he said, this was it, Putin. This is the change that Russia needs. Putin has, by launching this special military operation, which will ultimately fail, will allow Russians to regain control of their government eventually. That was what he believed. And he was willing to stake his life on it. Uh, and within days, he was arrested and uh, has been sentenced, got a lengthy sentence now for uh, to spend the rest of his life in a labor camp. Uh, that's how the authoritarian government has responded, arresting, uh, whether it's Navalny, Karamurza, and a lot of other people that we in the West have, have never heard of. The vast, a, a large number of Russians, uh, Russians I know, just keep their head down, uh, particularly older ones who survived the Soviet period, the tail end of the Soviet period, uh, the violence, the unrest in the 90s. They just want to go about their business and they don't want to get 
involved. Uh, but the problem, HR, is there are a lot of people, including young people, who are radicalized nationalists who have followed Putin's line. There are terrorist organizations that we, both we in the United States and even some in the Russian government feel uh, fear. There's uh, something called the Russian Imperial Movement, RIM. Um, and, you know, there, there are a lot of people in Russia who believe what Putin says, who believe what Patrushev says. So it's going to be, uh, it's, it's going to be a very, very difficult struggle after Putin leaves the scene, whenever that is, uh, this year, next year, sometime in the future. But I come back to something that, uh, that Churchill said, and this was during the, the civil war in Russia a uh, hundred years ago. And uh, he said, if Russia is to be saved, it is to be saved by Russians. It's not gonna be saved by the West. It's not gonna be saved by the United States. It's gotta be a Russian created uh, salvation of their people. But, but what Putin's done is to motivate, particularly the young, he characterizes this, you know, the war in Ukraine. He launched a special military operation. We in the West started a war against Russia using Ukraine as a battering ram. So he, when he says war, he means the war that he says we in the West started against Russia. And he now, he speaks of it, and when I say uh, messianic terms, he says this is a struggle of civilizations. There is something that he believes the, that is the Russian civilization that is threatened by the collective West, all of the names they have for us. It's not really the West because it includes South Korea, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, uh, you name it. Uh, but this is a civilizational struggle that he, that, and that's the way he talks about it, uh, as a struggle of civilizations. They issued, the Russian foreign ministry issued a new restatement of, they call it the concept of foreign relations of the Russian Federation. And on the very first page, they talk about the Russian civilization that the Russian government is defending against an onslaught by the West. And that's what young people is motivating those young Russians, many of them not well-educated, the well-educated ones, particularly those who could, you know, had, had well, good paying jobs have fled, which is another calamity for, for Russia and its future. But those who've stayed, they're buying into that and they're getting motivated by that. And that's, that's a problem. And you know, this is why it's important for people like Vladimir Milov, others to poke holes in the in Russia's firewall and, and to reach the population with you know, alternative sources of information. John, you've been great with your time. It's been an amazing conversation, but I do wanna ask you a couple more questions. The first of which is, what do you think are the most important lessons of this reinvasion of, of Ukraine? I remember in, in 2017, December, 2017, we had all uh, given President Trump our advice on, on whether or not to provide javelins and other defensive capabilities to the Ukrainians. And, and it was, uh, it was you know, a day uh, where he was in the back uh, dining room and I brought out a chart, you know, and I just showed him really every Russian provocation since Putin had taken over. And then really what had, had preceded that, which is usually something that indicated weakness to Putin. And the point I was trying to make to him is that people are telling you that 
providing Ukraine with defensive capabilities will be provocative, but actually what is provocative to Putin is, is weakness. And I think that's an important, an important lesson for us to, to, to take, especially as we look to maybe potential aggression from others, Iran, North Korea, and especially maybe China. But so that, that's my lesson is that, that weakness provokes uh, people like Putin, who is, I think, a, kind of a combination of a, a street thug, a bully, and a coward all wrapped up into one. Um, but what, what are your lessons from, from this reinvasion? And, and, uh, and what do you think our viewers ought to know? Uh, so re related to, to your point, HR, um, we in the United States, we don't listen and we don't study other countries and understand them. And the contrast, I would contrast that with the way the Russians study us. And I don't mean the FSB, the SVR, the Russian government. Russian news, the average Russian knows more about what's going on in the United States than the average American knows about what's going on in the United States. The United States is at the top of the news every day, the US, NATO, et cetera. Now, it's the news, particularly the state control channels, it's, it's their, their propaganda, but they study us and listen to us in ways that we never do. And it's not just with respect to the Russians, with anybody. We are so self-absorbed and self-obsessed we project our, our image, our values, our thinking on others and don't invest the time to really understand who those other people are, what motivates them. And we, in particular, they will often tell us, Putin has been telling us for a long time what his goals are and what he's going to do. And we just don't listen and we, we can't absorb it and we don't study it and we don't approach it in the, we approach it in a very self-centered way. And uh, it, it's a weakness. Uh, and I, I, you know, my, my ultimate conclusion is, uh, and I, I, I cite George Kennan for this, both, you know, his early work in the, the long telegram and, and the X article, his ultimate conclusion is with this colossus that was the Soviet Union that he was trying to figure out its interests and so forth. His ultimate conclusion about the success in this clash ongoing even then between the Soviet Union and the West, between the Soviet Union and the United States depended more on the strength of the United States internally. This is Kennan writing, you know, 80, 70, 80 years ago, not about January 6th or uh, woke protests or whatever. Our ability to engage the world successfully and protect US interests depends more on our own internal strength, politically and economically and socially, than it does on we need to know what our opponents and our adversaries, whether they're in Moscow, Beijing, Tehran, uh, Pyongyang are doing, but it ultimately depends more on our own strength, the courage of our convictions, the fact that we are willing to, uh, uh, to fight for things, for values uh, that prior generations of Americans did. And when they didn't, 
they ultimately paid with the blood of more Americans, whether it was sticking our head in the sand about what was going on in Nazi Germany in the 30s, uh, et cetera. Um, it, it ultimately, we need to do a better job, two things, do a better job of studying and listening to others and strengthening our own house and having the courage of our convictions. Well, I, I can't think of a better way to end than that. I mean, the, the whole inspiration for this series is this concept of strategic empathy, a term coined by uh, my friend and historian Zachary Shore. And, and you've just described strategic empathy perfectly, uh, as well as the importance for us to, to regain our strategic confidence, confidence in who we are as a people and in our democratic principles and institutions and processes. And John, you've lived that across your life of service and and you've inspired many, many others uh, through your example and through that selfless service. Uh, I can't tell you what a privilege it is for, for me to, to have had this conversation with you. And on behalf of the Hoover Institution, you know, th thank you for helping us learn more about a critical competition that, that, uh, that will help determine uh, our future and the future of generations to come. Well, HR, it was entirely my pleasure. It's always great to, uh, to speak with you. Thank you for having me. Thanks, John. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.